bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. My name is Erica, and with me is Patty Kralik, who hosts the podcast Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast that looks at life through Black and Indigenous eyes. Actually, it looks through white fuckery through Black and Indigenous eyes. And this is our special bonus podcast on Wet'suwet'en. So, uh, first, some administration. We have two copies of Desmond Cole's new best-selling book, The Skin We're In. Stay tuned on social media for details and make sure you subscribe to Bad and Bitchy to keep up. Second, our Patreon is thirsty, y'all. If you like what we do, who we talk to, and what we say, you can donate as little as $5 a month to our Patreon because like winter skin, it needs hydration. All right. Let's get into it. So, Patty. Yes. Do you want to say a little something about yourself before I get into the actual issue at hand? Sure. Well, um, I am Ojibwe, uh, which is kind of part of the broader Anishinaabe umbrella. So the Ojibwe from um, Northwestern Ontario. So when I talk about what's so it, and I'm talking about it as uh I guess a relative, an outside observer, because this isn't my territory, right? These aren't right. Um, you know, the West Coast nations. They actually had a lot, their time with contact actually is fairly recent. And they're not governed by treaties in the same way that we are here in Ontario. So that's, you know, we, when we talk about it a lot, we talk about, you know, being treaty rights and stuff. Yeah. Um, but on the West Coast, they don't have that because they didn't... Um, I guess Canada was just kind of done with making treaties and just started taking. So I feel like Canada was like, ah, they'll die off anyway. Yeah. Well, and that was the whole thing, right? So when, so when I talk about what's so and I'm, I'm really, I'm talking as kind of an outsider, somebody who's also learning and trying to be a good relative and a good supporter. Um, like the, the Kanayaka uh, Haka people out at uh, the Tyndanaga reserve that are, and, and it keep, they keep calling it, um, a rail blockade but really th- there's no blockade there's nothing blocking the tracks there's there's some people camping near the tracks they're there all the time but what the reserve has said is if you try to put a train through our territory because this is our territory we will stop it oh not, there are no trains coming through our territory um so so are you saying there are no physical blockades yeah there's no physical blockade if you go there, there is nothing Now there is there, uh, the, some of the photographs I've seen, there is like a big um, snowplow that's near the tracks that's ready to drive up onto it if necessary, but there's no physical blockade. And so they keep calling it the blockade, the blockade, but there's no actual physical blockade. There are people camping nearby. They're there all the time. So there's kind of a rotating. Um, so it's not like always, it's not necessarily the same people there all the time. It's different people because people have jobs, right? They got jobs, they got lives. So they're going, uh, you know, so there's always a presence there nearby. And they have said, you are not putting trains through our territory. That's, that's just how it is. Oh, oh, Okay. Well, Mm -hmm. you know what? The funny thing is, um, you got ahead of me. Let me just introduce. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. That's fine. I started introducing myself and then just kind of explaining where I was coming from. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm thankful because that already got me like, what? (laughs) I'm like, now I'm confused. 
I love it because you know what that means that we'll have a good discussion. So before we get into like Patty's revelations, apparently, um, let's just explain what's going on. The RCMP's enforcement of the coastal gas link injunction against the Wet'suwet'en Nation has ignited a firestorm of protest across the country, seem seemingly paralyzing rail transport and making life uncomfortable for the white settler majority. Add to, that, add to that a Canadian media that has determined its position to be in service of white supremacy and the trampling of Indigenous rights, and the debate around Indigenous rights becomes murky. For weeks, protesters have taken to the streets, railways, and ports, paralyzing parts of the country's transportation sector to stand in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en land defenders who are fighting to stop the con construction of a pipeline on their traditional territories. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who hold authority over their land say they were not properly consulted on the pipeline. The company says it has reached agreements with 20 elected First Nations band councils. However, those councils have no authority over the land in dispute. The police were enforcing a December 31st, 2019 BC Supreme Court injunction granted on behalf of Coastal GasLink, a subsidiary of TransCanada Energy. Last month, following the injunction ruling, BC Premier John Horgan announced the Coastal GasLink project would go ahead, telling the media, quote, the rule of law applies, unquote. Now that the courts have sided or had sided with TC Energy. Federal police from the RCMP sent a letter to hereditary chiefs this week saying they would withdraw from Wet'suwet'en territory along the pipeline's route as long as a service road was kept clear. Hereditary chiefs, however, rejected this offer, saying the RCMP are still patrolling the territory. So, Patty, before you were saying that um, unlike the majority of Canada, First Nations in BC uh, never ceded the land. No, and that's um, and that makes things really complicated um, in dealing with you know in, in dealing in dealing with um, you know with BC nations because although Canada doesn't have they don't have a good track record of of dealing with any treaties properly it at least provides a framework right in which you, you know for for things to work but in the west coast everything has to go to court everything everything has to go to court um, because it's all it's all unceded territory it's all unceded territory there are some places that are now covered under modern treaties but the treaty negotiation process is really sneaky is really mm -hmm. sneaky because the the different nations aren't allowed to talk to each other in terms of what they're being offered. Oh, uh, like, really? Yeah, like um, you know, I belong, you know, I belong to uh, a local, and there's a lot of similar organizations across the province. And when we go into contract negotiations, we talk with other locals. Well, what did you get? What did you get? What did you get? Right. So that we can put together kind of a coherent plan. Well, they're not allowed to do that. But the government knows, they know what they're dealing with when they want, you know, they know what they're offering each one. So it's really unfair. Um, so the Wet'suwet'en did argue, and the case that gets cited a lot is Delgamuk. 
And yeah. Delgamuk actually deals with Wet'suwet'en in specific. Right. So what the court said, and it, it's, they'll talk about them having underlying rights, mm-hmm. underlying, you know, underlying, um, oh, I'm losing the word, underlying title. Mm-hmm. But that underlying title isn't really meaningful. Like Canada, you know, it, it's something that burdens the state. The state has to deal with the burden of Aboriginal title. Mm-hmm. But the state can still do stuff. Like obviously, like with the coastal gas link, the state can still say, yes, you know, we're going to support this pipeline or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so although it, it's something that they have to get around, it's like consultations. But if we're not allowed to say no, then what's the point of consultations? Well, what is free, free prior to informed consent then? Well, under UNDRIP, it's supposed to include the right to say no. Okay. Because right? it means that we're given free prior and informed consent. I mean, I, in, in my 19 years of social work, I've had people sign a lot of consent documents. And that means that they're free to say no that I'm giving them all of the information about what this can, about what they're agreeing to mm-hmm. and that they have the capacity to make the agreement that they, you know, they've got the wherewithal that they're the, even the right people, right? Like I can't right. sign a consent giving somebody permission to, to do something to my neighbor's property. A really mm-hmm. good analogy I heard um, regarding these chiefs that have given consent versus the hereditary chief is if say the city wanted to build something on your property and talk to the tenants instead of you. Oh my gosh. I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. And the tenants said it was fine and you're not, because what's so haven't said no to the pipeline. They haven't said no period. What they've said is not here. You can build it up there. They've offered, I think two, alternate routes mm-hmm. and coastal gas link doesn't like either of them. One of them uh, because they would have to use a smaller pipe. So it's not going to make them as much money. Um, you know, so they're not saying no to the pipeline, which is another way that the media is constantly spinning it. And also um, environmentalists who are kind of hijacking. Like we had extinction rebellion came out to the action that we had a couple uh, last week, which was great. Um, as, as support. Rebellion for, for What's that? Poor Extinction Rebellion. It's a global, it's a global umbrella movement mm-hmm. that kind of absorbs smaller environmental groups to speak with a bigger voice. Okay. They've had a lot of problems um, colonizing smaller groups. <laughs> like that's really what they do. You know, that's really been a big problem in terms of not listening to what's happening in, in small communities because they've got kind of these big global plans. Right. But you're not going to find a single answer that's going to work globally, right? Every individual community has strengths and weaknesses, has specific needs that a global solution isn't going to fit. So they're getting better at listening to the people on the ground. Um, But environmentalists have a long history of hijacking indigenous issues. And so they're kind of turning it into a no pipeline argument, which isn't what the Wet'suwet'en are saying at all. They're not saying no pipeline. They're saying not here. They're saying, yes, you know, they're saying yes to the city. Yes, you can build a parking lot on my property, but not in the backyard. I use that all the time. Right. You can build it over here, you know, but the city's saying, no, 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 the parking lot is the easiest place for us. And besides, your tenants said it was fine. Well, okay, but my tenants don't have, they have use of the backyard, but no rights over it. 
-hmm. And that's what Dalgamuk laid out was that the band councils have rights over the reserves, over the small communities that are under federal authority. Through the Indian Act, right? Under the Indian Act, correct. Mm -hmm. So they have, so the band councils have authority over that part, but they don't have authority over the broader territory. The broader territory, unceded territory, is under the authority of the hereditary chiefs. Mm-hmm. And that's what Coastal Gas Link is putting through the pipeline, is through the area that's under control of the hereditary chiefs. So why were you, it doesn't matter that you got permission from the tenants. You didn't get permission from the, from the property owner. Right. Right. That's, that's a wonderful analogy, actually, and I think it, it clears up a lot. Um, I, there's so many tentacles to that. I'm like, which one do I pick up first? Uh, so if, so then how did Coastal GasLink get permission then in the first place? Was that like- goes back a really long time. The UNS Stoughton camp has been set up the early 2000s. Yeah. 2009, I think. 2009. Yeah. So wow. the late 2000s. Yeah. The, the UNS Stoughton camp got set up, got set up. So Coastal Gas Link has been around for a long time wanting to put their national gas pipeline through and the UNS Stoughton have said no, that you're not putting it through here. Um, Explain the UNS Stoughton camp um, compared to Wet'suwet'en territory. Yeah, I don't, it, it's a, it's an, it's another nation in that, in, in that same, in that same kind of community, in that same community. It's like yeah, it's the like Ojibwe and the Cree, yeah. um, you know, and, and up in Northwestern Ontario, the Ojibwe and Cree spend so much time together that Ojibwe is a real language. So, oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're kind of neighboring communities that are working together because it's, it, it's similar territory and it might be, um, yeah, because they're within the same territory, right? Yeah, and, and like down here, because in Ontario, in southern Ontario, like even up in Ottawa, I think you guys are covered under the dish with one spoon territory, which is mm-hmm. where the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee kind of agreed to work together. Right. Because people always say we had no concept of land ownership, with, which is such bupkis. We knew who <laughs> lived where, right? We knew who had the right to hunt where. We knew... You, you know, we knew where each other's hunting grounds were, where we lived in the summer, where we lived in the winter. We weren't all, it wasn't just like a big slumber party free for all. <laughs> we knew, and we had different governance structures. <laughs> you know, the Haudenosaunee had very clearly laid out cities that they lived in you with like barricades is. and everything. Well, let, me, let me pick up from that. It's always funny to me that white people think they're the only ones are they're the first and only ones to come up with systems of government government for governance purposes. And, you know, what kills me is that, like, there are societies that were operating underneath a very robust system before they even thought of, 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 of putting together a ship. Like, yeah. like that's, what, that's what's killing me in this debate. It's as though... It's as though European governance came to civilize everybody. Well, that's, that's the story of colonization, right? That's yeah. the Enlightenment era thinkers that everybody studies in philosophy class. Is the, that, you know, that's where society and civilization started. And uh, Amos Key, who's um, an educator at Brock University now, he prefers to talk about us as civilizations rather than nations. Right. Uh, he sees nation as a very Western uh, colonial concept and, you know, prefers to talk to, about us as civilizations. 
and the Wet'suwet'en structure, it, you know, it, it predates contact by a long time. And it's probably one of the more intact governance systems outside of the Haudenosaunee people, like the, the Iroquois, Mohawk, you know, outside of those, those yeah. people. Um, just because contact is so recent on the West Coast. I mean, for some of these people, you probably go back three, three maybe four generations to no contact. Wow. You know, to kind of living on their own way. Like if you think about the way Canada was colonized and, yeah. you know, before we got kind of, you know, before Canada kind of moved up into the Northwestern part of British Columbia, that would be what the late 1800s when that was happening. Mm-hmm. So you've got those governance structures intact and operating right up until the late 1800s. And still, because I don't know if, you know, you've ever been to the West Coast, but some of those communities are hard to get to, right? Like it's Rockies and, you know, know, so there'd be communities there that really haven't had a whole ton of contact up until the last hundred years. So their governance systems, not only being very old and entrenched, are also fairly alive in people's minds. And people want to slag on the fact of hereditary chiefs, but we got a queen on our money and an unelected Senate. So whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But democracy, Patty. I know. (laughs) I saw somebody laughing about that on Twitter. It's like, right. You know, you're, you're slagging on hereditary chiefs, but we have an unelected Senate. Like what are you going on about? (laughs) We have a governor general and we have a queen. Yeah. So I got nothing. I, I know, I know, I know. I, I, I know, I know. Um, so let's go back to, is it Dagamut? Dagamut, yeah. yeah. So, so the point is, is that now, like what Sowetan chiefs have title, right? Yes. But it's, is that, is, so there's a part in there that the courts kick back to the federal government, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And, um, which, so there's like a nuance in there. About it's more that. like you have to find a way to make this work. Yeah. You can't just, you can't just steamroll over them, but you, they don't get an absolute veto either. And part yeah. of it, Candace Collison, uh, talked about this, um, as well. The Dalgamuk actually, they got the declaration of underlying title but they needed an additional court case in order to prove it or test it. So it's, it's really, it's an untested ruling. Mm-hmm. Um, and by this time they were exhausted. They had no more money. This had taken a very long time to just get to the declaration. So they opted not to test the case. They opted not to kind of proceed forward with that. So it's kind of, it's important but there's still a piece missing from that. So I don't know, maybe that will come out of this. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Canada doesn't recognize our right to say no. And it's, it's a colonial court. So I think the way forward is what Arthur Manuel did, which was um, where he took, he's from Southern, he he was an activist from Southern BC. He took it to the UN and the world bank. Oh, Um, Issues, yeah. Issues says if we're nations, and Orrin Lyons has done the same thing, which was actually how we got under it. Uh, Orrin Lyons was a big part of that. Was in, why are we going to a colonial government made up of colonizers? 
who are going to interpret colonial law in ways that are going to benefit the people who wrote the law. If we're nations, then let's go to the national court. Like, do you remember uh, when NAFTA was first, the first time around with NAFTA and they were banging on about softwood lumber? Yeah. Yeah, I remember softwood lumber. Well, the softwood lumber thing, a big part of that um, was because Canada is allowing people to, allowing logging companies to log off crown land, which in BC is unceded indigenous territory. Oh. Mm -hmm. So it's an effective subsidy, right? Because then they're charging almost nothing. Because if people are going to come and log off my land, I'm going to make a bunch of money off it. Right. And the, Cana- the Canadian government is basically saying, yeah, take it, do whatever you want. It's not our land anyway, you know, it's, you know, whatever. So, and it's the same with diamond mining and other extraction industries that are all taking place on crown land, which is unceded territory, especially in BC. Um, and so what Arthur Manuel did was he took it to the UN. He took it to the World Trade Organization. He made a big stink about it there at the, at the World Bank, which was how it got, that argument all about the the subsidy came in because, and they bought the argument was that this is a subsidy. It's not your land. You're subsidized. You're, you're effectively subsidizing. And so that's, and that may be where this has to wind up is in an international court. I don't know. Okay. You're blowing my mind, Patty. You're welcome. I love it. You're blowing my (laughs) mind. Seriously. Cause I didn't even think of that. Like I didn't think of that intersection. Because right. if we're nations, if we're civilizations, then why, you know, within, then we should be going to an international court. So I don't know, it worked, it worked well for Manuel and what he was doing. And settler courts, sometimes they help us and sometimes they don't. Yeah. And when they help us, we're very happy. But then what do we do when they don't? Right. You know, when we test the key, you know, say they, they go ahead and they decide to test the case and the court rules that, well, at the end of the day, Canada can do what it wants because it's all Canada. Then what are we going to do? I mean, this is just such, this is how white supremacy works, right? Mm-hmm. It, is, it has, it's systems for, for redress are systems that A, either created or upheld said issue for you to redress so you have to go to them to redress said issue according to their laws that were originally meant to strip you of your sovereignty, of your culture, of everything. Mm-hmm. The fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Well, Cindy Blackstock spent, what, 10 years on her court case with the Human Rights Tribunal about the unfair funding of child welfare on reserve. The Human Rights Tribunal agreed with her that that was racist. And we're on, what, seven compliance orders now? Canadian government. What a, what a, and if they don't have to obey the Human Rights Tribunal, why does anybody? Why does your landlord have to obey it? Why would my employer have to? Why does anybody have to obey it if the Canadian government doesn't have to? Well, that's a really good point. And, you know, as much... So, I... I <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm jumping around here because I had this all planned out and it just went No, it's not you. It's just like, I'm just thinking to myself, then what the hell was reconciliation all about in the first place? It's, I think it's us becoming reconciled to colonialism. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's all it is. It's just us because they've thrown the truth part right out the window. (laughs) The truth part of truth and reconciliation is 
done. Nobody cares. Well, like Trudeau's speech the other day, I was so which one? angry. Which, which one? Oh, the Friday one? The one where he'd backtrack on everything he said earlier in the week? Yes, where he turned into Andrew Shearer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's basically, he gets up there and he said, well, we've tried absolutely nothing and they won't budge, so it's time for you to take the barricades down. It's like, what was that? No. Oh, I was so angry. I was, oh, I was, I'm not even going to say what I was going to do. I was so mad. Um, and all the RCMP really did, like, I don't know. Do you have little siblings? No. No. Do you I, have friends who oh, have little siblings? Like, you know, when you go on the long car trip and there's somebody sitting on the car beside you and there's that little line. Yeah. And they keep poking you and poking you and you're not make them stop. Well, all the RCMP did was go to just their side of the line, ready to jab as soon as mom looks away. They haven't left Wet'suwet'en territory, and they've escalated their surveillance. Well, don't talk about the surveillance. And they're saying we left. So, no, you haven't left. You're still in Wet'suwet'en territory, and now you've increased your surveillance. How is that leaving? That's not leaving. Can we talk about the surveillance? Because the surveillance is particularly concerning to me, okay? Mm. Especially after, like, after C-51. C-51 needs to be looked at with the, with, with, with really critical thinking because at the at the end of the day the surveillance on indigenous communities and especially indigenous protesters is going to be used is being used right now actually by politicians to to encourage the targeting of indigenous people and you know when andrew shear and peter mckay uh, when Andrew Shear says, well, just send in the police, okay? Uh, and, you know, as though the police is like a personal, par- like private military organization for him, mm-hmm. okay? To endanger the lives of Indigenous people. And then there's Peter McKay, who decided that vigilantism, of, of course, it's okay for white people to become vigilantes in the um, service of resource extraction capitalism. Mm-hmm. Well, Did I Because I, and, and, I mean, I'm just going to jump all over the place again. When you're talking about the police going in after Indigenous people, that never ends well, right? No. You've got so-called Oka, these, the so-called Oka situation, the siege at Ganestake. Yeah. Um, you know, where the government sent in the military in a standoff against, um, you know, the, the Ghani and Gahaka people. You've got Gustafsson Lake, which did not, which was a Sundance and mm-hmm. gets framed as some violent armed camp. They were Sundancers. And the RCMP went in. And then you've got, and then um, Ipperwash, mm-hmm. you know, get those effing Indians out of my park. Yeah. You, you know, so... The, Canada has shown that it, it's willing, you know, that it has done this in the past, but it never, it never goes well. It never goes well. And I think that's when the RCMP went in, because this what's so it, and I mean, they, they went in last year, the camp has been around for a long time. You know, Stoughton, uh, the camp has been around since 2009, right? These are not recent events. These are things that have been ongoing for a very long time. Um, but when the RCP, RCMP went in and they, you, you know, and they were arresting Frida 
and, and you know, and other matriarchs and like kind of dragging women. And then that photograph, there's always that one iconic photograph, right? Of the smirking RCMP officer in front of the red dresses. Yes. And that camp is down a logging road off the Trail of Tears. Yes, Highway 16. Yes. So that the logging road into the camp is off the Trail of Tears in a part of the province where the RCMP have had to admit their complicity in the missing and murdered. Not just that they turned a blind eye, but that some of their officers were actually guilty of, you know, the sexual assault of Indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at, so, so at worst, they're... They're the predators themselves. At best, they turned a blind eye to it and ignored them. Oh, she's just she's just drunk. She'll be home in a few days. Oh, she's just this. She's just that. Like how many years did Robert Pickford get away with? Yeah, you know, preying yeah. on women in. Um, well, he knew who to prey on, didn't he? Exactly, because we're we're disposable. Mm-hmm. right indigenous women as a whole are disposable yeah. so because they you always have to get us off the land right so if you can break the women get us off the land then who cares well, who has title because you just societies yeah you just put your pipeline wherever you want it yeah so you know so that picture of him smirking in front of those red dresses and i think that's why you saw this kind of sudden explosion in a way that we didn't see last year because they oh, raided the camp good. last year too right and I went, I went to some actions. I went to, you know, I went to a couple of round dances, um, you, you know, kind of in support, but there was nobody, you, you know, blockading, you know, the Mohawks weren't saying you can't run a train through our territory. There weren't people, you know, kind of filling the streets. It's like every weekend. I can, I have a, I have my pick of, I have my pick of what's in actions I could go to, mm-hmm. you know, because people are just done and we're seeing solidarity in a really nice way the action that we, local action we had we had a lot of union flags you know kind of among you know you know among the people who had gathered we had extinction rebellion showed up and they asked permission they approached me at, at an event the week before to see if it was okay if they came and if they had their sign i said yes please come you know yeah. um solidarity so i think we're seeing that because because I don't know even why. Well, those pictures were just so ugly. But just seeing the state come down on us, and then t- to hear people like McKay authorizing, basically authorizing. Look, there's some real, there, there's some real Canadians doing what doing what the government won't do. People are calling for Ford to send the OPP in to Tyndanega, and it's like you go take on the Mohawks. See how that goes for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There is a reason, actually, and I heard the funniest story. Tom Porter tells the story about the Mohawk hairdo. Yeah, yeah. Um, because when you go into war, war is a terrible thing, right? You have to do terrible things in war. You, you, you know, war means that you're not only putting yourself at risk, but you're willing to kill people. Um, and that's not okay. That's never okay. Uh, so different nations have different ceremonies for how, how we deal with that. Um, but one of the things that... Um, that the Kanyakahaka people, the Mohawk people do is they'll cut their hair. But you also want to intimidate the opponent. You also want them to think that you're, that you're nuts and that you'll do anything to accomplish your goal. So they leave that Mohawk down the middle of their hair and spike it up so that they look crazy. Oh. <laughs> it's an intimidation strategy. So the punks took it on, but the Mohawk are the uh, keepers of the Eastern doorway. Mm-hmm. So their responsibility is to basically protect 
because that that waterway as it enters um turtle island you know kind of our this whole this whole continent they were the keepers of that doorway and so that's so like so when people kind of make jokes about the You're mohawk coming like, you know curtain like waterfallish type doorway area well and it just it, i think doorway is more of a thing like an entry point right because the St. Lawrence Seaway comes in and the Mohawk if you look at their territory is all kind of along that eastern part of the St. Lawrence Seaway okay so their job was to protect is to protect that's their role mm-hmm. in the confederacy that's kind of you know you know because the different nations of the confederacy have different roles and um you know so when people kind of make jokes and, and you know we kind of do about the Mohawk being you know kind of you know aggressive and you know in that way well that's their job their job is to stick up for people so when they saw what was happening at Wet'suwet'en they did what they could and they said in solidarity with you this is what we're doing and so they have said there are no more trains coming through our territory this is our territory and there are no more trains coming through and the Wet'suwet'en just this last weekend some of their hereditary chiefs came and met with the Mohawk chiefs, the Kaneakahaka chiefs. And that's pretty significant. And why is it significant? Well, because they're East and West coast, right? I don't know that there's ever been kind of a formal meeting between these two, these two, these two governments, you know, to to put it that way. Um, We're seeing, you know, we saw it at Standing Rock. We're seeing it now with the Wet'suwet'en. We're seeing more a lot more of this cooperation ah that's what i was getting to that was my next question yeah we're seeing a lot more of this gathering together because i don't think there wasn't anybody who didn't show up to standing rock like i think nations civilizations from all over were sending representatives to sign on to it and to say you know we're together in this we're together so is that is is that new is that like how this first of all okay is there something new about Wet'suwet'en in terms of the response of the land defenders and this, that solidarity that it was different for like Ipperwash and all of the other standoffs? I think so, yeah. I think like, so, is uh, that up new? Until, do you see I new? think up, up until fairly recently, we've all kind of dealt with our stuff as our stuff. Yeah. Right? Like right from the right from contact. There were some that sided with the British, some with the French, you know, old rivalries, you know, kind of got manipulated and, you know, kind of reignited. And we didn't stand together. I think if we had stood together, history would have gone a little bit differently, but we didn't um, because we didn't know we needed to. Yeah. Right. We did. We, we thought that we could just kind of make deals and trades and work together in kind of this broad way that we always have. And in sense of, you know, kind of trading and those kind of relationships. But over the last maybe 30, 40 years, I think things are really changing. Um, And our nations, our civilizations are starting to come together in important ways and making formal agreements, uh, not just, you know, not just statements of solidarity, but but in making formal agreements, having formal meetings to say, yes, you will stick up for us in this way and we will stick up for you in that way. And the people at Tyndanaga have said, there's no trains coming through our territory until the hereditary chiefs say it's okay. They will say 
when the trains can roll. Not so we are support. We've said that we're supporting them. They will say when the trains roll, and it's that kind of relationship that I think is really interesting. Really yeah. interesting in this evolution uh, of indigenous identity that we've seen over, I think, you know, the last 20, 30 years. It's really, it's really exciting. It is. And no doubt social media makes that easier too. Oh, for sure. We're talking all the time. And independent media, right? Like, yeah. you know, any fool with a computer can have a podcast and kind of get that story out there that they yeah. want to tell. I'm, so, I'm, I'm really impressed at how much social media not to say that I didn't think it wouldn't but how much social media has really played into undercutting a media narrative and because the social media stuff was out there first first of all second of all I don't know how in these remote communities they're uploading to Facebook but hey I mean I'm like that's ingenious um Maybe and, Facebook and native Twitter are very different places. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Native, native Twitter, native Facebook is where all your aunties are. <laughs> oh, oh, totally. Totally. Okay. Okay, good. So it's the same for us then because I'm sorry, but black Facebook, you're like, eh, black Twitter though. That's a next level. Right, that's like I know. wild, wild west. So really I always funny. think the same of native Twitter. Yeah, that's I'm exactly like, the same like, and I've been a lurker for years, so <laughs> a lurker and retweeter <laughs> for years. So I just see all of these discussions that are unfolding. First of all, I think they're rich as hell. Second of all, I, it's, it's, you know, I look at those, those stories and you contrast them with a media narrative that to me is just doing PR for the police and the state, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's what we've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen, we've even seen the Guardian do better work. I mean, it was the Guardian that, um, that uh, talked about the RCMP and their uh, lethal force edict and, and so on and so forth. Ricochet's been good. ABTN. Ricochet's been amazing. Yeah, APTN, of course. Ricochet's been doing Ricochet's been doing that groundwork. Yes. Well, Ricochet broke the story or uh, about um, the environmental assessment having been rejected. Yes. Yes. Oh, and that was also enraging because you knew it was rejected. You knew you couldn't build, but you went and you got your injunction anyway. And the RCMP went in throwing elbows and destroying things anyway. You had so this has been approved. Like, so, what are so you doing? The, the environmental assessment, okay, was it still in, like, the, the works as this injunction happened? Like, I'm questioning this injunction because I, I have questions. I have questions about this whole legal process. Because if they didn't have the, um, the BC environmental assessment approved, then how could they build in the first place? The province, and again, I'm just looking at the Ricochet article right now. Yeah. Um, the, pro the province told Ricochet that they had authorized CGL to do pre-construction activities. Okay. During, basically figuring that, well, it's going to get approved, so you may as well pour the foundation. Okay. But according to the Ricochet article, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be that simple. So, well, and... Um, 
also that that whole business about the the alternate pipeline routes nobody yes. knew about that yeah alicia elliott tweeted that out it was like a little throwaway article i i remember a little northern I, saw that. I was like oh really yeah yeah, yeah. And so people are saying, are side eyeing me on it and saying, really, are you sure? Is that a reliable source? And I'm like, you know, I got no reason to mistrust Alicia Elliott. But then this uh, Andrew uh, Kurjata went out, I think he's a journalist, and he went looking into it and he found quite a lot of information about this, this alternate pipeline route and why it was rejected. Coastal GasLink put up a statement about it. So I figured, well, if they put up a statement, then it must be, there must be something to it. Well, Elizabeth May- But nobody was talking about it until Alicia Elliott tweeted that out. Mm -hmm. The mainstream media wasn't saying anything about it. And no, yet, no. because that's the narrative they want to tell, right? They yeah. want to make it, those Indians are standing in the way of progress. Those, you yes. know, they're, they're, they, just, they just want to live in the Stone Age. You know, they're, you know, they, you know, they just, they, they just don't, they just don't want all of this, you know, some of them do, some of them are willing to sign on, but even the ones who sign on, when uh, you're talking about TMX, some of them were saying, well, we had to, because if we don't, and there's a spill, we don't get any money. We don't get any money to clean it up. Oh my so God. Of course we signed on to it because if we don't, and there's a spill, then what are we going to do? That's not consent. I, you know, talk about starving people into submission. It's Canadian way, right? Yeah. Alberta's called their, what, their Buffalo Declaration? Yes. Mighty rich coming from people that slaughtered the buffalo to starve the Indians into submission. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mighty white of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you tell me? Okay, so I, I also noticed the media is um, doing this divide and conquer, which they, which you just touched on, where they're separating the so-called quote-unquote good Indian from bad Indian, and like, like how, and and you know, this is this. It's amazing to me. I could pick out these pieces of white supremacy, these tactics of white supremacy. That looks familiar. That looks familiar. That, the tactics don't change across no. populations. It really doesn't. And they haven't changed over, what, 300 years? Exactly. They're doing the same stuff. And it's working. Yeah. So why did they don't have to change their strategy? It works. So, I mean, for I, once I saw the pitting of we – we want this. We don't try to undermine the entire community, right? By saying, well, you, their people, your people want this, even if you don't, is classic Britishness, to be honest. It really is. I mean, isn't that what they did in, in, in well, everywhere? Mm hmm. You find a few people to be on your side, and then you give them authority. And yeah. then you, you you know and then you and then you get what you want. That's what they've done everywhere, and that's yeah. what the whole Indian Act is. The whole Indian Act was about setting up a system of governance that benefited the crown, because nowhere, none of our bands, none of none of our, our civilizations had that kind of governance structure. We all had existing governance structures. We all had ways that we that we did stuff, and yet this one system got imposed because that was that's what served you know, that's what served the colonial, that's what served the crown, that's what served Canada was having, was having it organized in this particular way. 
I mean, it's what, it's only since the 30s or 40s that Indian Native people were allowed to leave the reserve without a pass? Yeah. Yeah. And wasn't that pass key system used by the South Africans? Yes. In their yeah. apartheid? Yep. They, and really, they, that's my grandma's lifetime. Yeah. Right? My dad was born in the 40s. So yeah. that's my grand. So we're not even talking ancient history. His mother would have remembered the, you know, would have remembered the past system. That's not yeah. that long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact is, is that, so, you know, what I'm always curious about is the Indian act and how it affected like matriarchal societies or not make matriarchal civilizations, I should mm-hmm. say. Right. And how really it was the Indian act that brought in misogyny into indigenous communities, indigenous civilizations. Yeah. And especially by making women second-class citizens. Well, capitalism had just done a bang-up job of that in England, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because you can't have, ca- you know, the, you know, it brought in patriarchy. I just finished a few months ago, I read uh, Caliban and the Witch, which is all of, um, it's Sylvia Federici, uh, all about how uh, the witch hunts were basically a, a strategy of capitalism to undermine um, to un- undermine the cooperation between men and women, demonizing women to elevate men. And as a political strategy, that, it just, that just moved along with the colonizers into, you, you know, here, because we think of history in silos, but really that stuff was going on in England at the same time as colonization this demonization of women and elevating men and, and, you know, kind of make it dividing women into these, you know, you know, to the Madonna whore thing, either you're this, you know, perfect paragon of femininity, which, you know, became the white woman, or you're kind of this evil slutty Jezebel, which became black and indigenous women, which, you know, were disposable, which feeds right into the missing and murdered and those, you know, the Pocahontas and all of that bullshit. Trust me, you can say bullshit. All that bad stuff, you know, the the missing and murdered. How many, even Harper, well, we're not going to do sociology on that. Well, if there's, if if there's a problem happening like this where it's just way out of whack, then either there's something wrong with us or there's something wrong, there's a policy or there's a belief or there's something wrong over here. And there's nothing wrong with Indigenous women. We are fine. There's nothing inherently terrible about us that we should be going missing in this way. So there must be something wrong with beliefs about Indigenous women. So let's deal with that. Let's deal with how we have been demonized over the years. And extraction industry is part of that. Well, it's interesting because I read in the Narwhal, I'm going to drop that too. It's Uh, It's another good resource. Pardon? It's another good resource. Yeah. So um, it, it's, it has, honestly, it touched on stuff that I was just like, what? Uh, one of the things it touched on was, you know, was that connection between missing and murdered Indigenous women and um, these, these camps, these man camps, right? So what Sotoan hereditary chiefs requested uh, a judicial review on February 3rd that argued that an extension should not have been granted in light of more than 50 instances of non-compliance 
with the conditions of coastal gasoline permits and in light of the findings of Canada's National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. The inquiry found that there is substantial evidence that natural resource projects increase violence against Indigenous women and children to spirit individuals. Quote, increased crime levels, including drug and alcohol-related offenses, sexual offenses, and domestic and gang violence, have been linked to Boomtown and other resource development contexts. There is an urgent need to consider the safety of Indigenous women consistently in all stages of project planning. Ha! Huh. And then, of course, the Unistoten camp is located six, what, 66 kilometers from the Highway of Tears? We have I mean, both camps, yeah. Yeah. We're very close to the Highway of Tears. Yeah. So, I mean, it just goes, it just, it just supports what you were saying where these, if you look at history in silos, you're missing it. Mm -hmm. you're missing the point. You're missing what we can learn from it. And you're missing all those connections, right? And that's why I jump around all over the place because you say something and I see connections. Me too. That's you know, why I see like, it all lighting up. I see how all these things are connected to each other. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I, I like, that's a piece that um, you think that feminism would be all over uh, in Canada. Some feminisms are uh white feminism no so i mean and it's not just white feminism it, it's any of these they, they all get kind of owned by whiteness and then we're expected to you know once they get their goals met then we're, we're supposed to expect that they're going to come back for us and yeah. they never do they yeah. never do because once they've got what they want then they move on to whatever to whatever the next thing is so that's, I, I mostly follow black and indigenous thinkers on yeah. Twitter. And so the feminism that I see, <laughs> yeah. the feminism that I see is of course a much broader, you know, much broader, much more inclusive and thinking about how stuff impacts the most vulnerable among us. Yeah. And, and I think that's like, honestly, the whole point of intersectional feminism yeah. is that is thinking about those most vulnerable among us and not in a siloed way, but in, mm -hmm. in that way that we were just talking about where, where there's lots of link, links and intersections. And, you know, I mean, I, I personally, um, now I need to go back and, and look at, you know, the inquiry on missing and murdered indigenous women and all of that stuff, because I feel as though I'm missing a piece in understanding mm -hmm how our country deals with women and women from the perspective of vulnerable women mm -hmm. not from the perspective of respectable women who want to be on the next board of directors of whatever not mm -hmm. in that powerful way and so because if we don't understand we we will not understand anything until we understand those struggles and especially, in, we don't under, it's amazing to me how many of us don't know anything about this country, like nothing. I have been doing, the last couple of years, I've been doing kind of like this really deep dive into American history, into the antebellum and yeah. Gilded Age. Yeah. And the amount of things that we don't know about our own history is just 
We don't know anything. History has been taught wrong. It's not even like we're missing stuff. It's been deliberately taught wrong. And yeah. that's just, you know, that's just so infuriating yeah. because you can see what it's all in service to. Yeah. Most definitely. And so, so it, you know, it's all in service to hierarchies. And so now I'm dedicating my life to dismantling hierarchies everywhere I see them. Well, hierarchies are, you know, a colonialist structure anyway. So it's not like you're, you're off brand or anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, completely on brand. <laughs> it's, it's quite consistent, I would think. <laughs> update my Twitter bio. Dismantle their hierarchies. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, it's just such a good way to, it, it's, it's just such a helpful lens, I think. And I mean, just different ways of looking at things. It's not necessarily about this is right and that's wrong. It's when we look at something with a different lens, we come to different solutions. Yes. Right. So when I when so now I'm looking at everything through the lens of hierarchy and what is this hierarchy serving? And so that brings me to different solutions. It brings me to different ways of approaching problems, different ways of thinking about things. Almost oh, definitely. Um, so I'm gonna. I'm going to pivot and I'm going to go to, oh, by the way, you know, Justin Trudeau seeking a UN Security Council seat, right? That'll go well after this. <laughs> Pam Palmater came out with a, bril- a, a good um, essay that he doesn't deserve it. Yes, he doesn't. I that. Yeah, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't deserve it. He stood in front of the UN what, five, six years ago and told them Canada's back. Yeah. And what has he done? other than cry occasional tears about how important indigenous people are. And then he buys a pipeline and then, you know, he tells us how important we are. And then, you know, and then he goes and does and, and has seven compliance orders against him. Yeah. And, you know, he, he can't, he, he can't control his country's rail system. A handful of angry Mohawks in Tyndanaga have brought via rail to its knees. You know, they're <laughs> rail to its knees. And he, this man thinks he belongs on the Security Council, please. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, how fragile are we? Okay? That literally, there, there's some, you know, there's some, for lack of a better word, gatherings around the, and it just goes to show, by the way, that, that you know what? I, I just evolved on my point. The, um, the fact that um, Mohawk people can say, you know what, don't, you're not, you're not, you're not riding your train, driving your trains through our land, bye. You know, is exactly why the Canadian state doesn't want to give land rights. Exactly why. Because that's yeah. power. Just that's like what happens. Them, just by saying that, they basically brought a whole transportation transportation system to its knees. You're right. That's but the it. Mohawk laid some important groundwork in that, right? With the with with Oka, with the the yes. siege at Ganesatage. Yes, they they showed what they were willing to do and how much support they had behind them. They weren't alone. Yes, right. Like I mean, they held it on. You know, they started on their own, but people streamed in. And, yeah. and they weren't, they, you know, they weren't alone in that way. And the same with this group in Tyndanaga, it's a smallish group, but they're, they're not alone. They've right. got global, you know, they've, they've got support, you know, coming, you know, verbal support coming in from all over the place. And the same with the Wet'suwet'en. 
Yeah. Garden River First Nation years ago uh, stopped the Trans-Canada Highway. I don't remember what the issue was. It was a long time ago. Um, but the Trans-Canada actually now rounds around Garden River. It doesn't go through Garden River anymore. They actually rerouted a highway because of, because of the actions. So Canada's not a very big country. In terms of where our infrastructure, in terms of where our infrastructure is, and there's a lot of rail and highway that goes through that goes through reserves. I mean, there's a lot of people like to talk about how reserve, you know, so many of reserves are remote, and they are. But you have to think about remote to what? Remote to white people. <laughs> That's our land, so we're not remote to our homes. Yeah, uh, but remote to everything cities have. So, um, but there's a lot. Like really, if we all, if, if all of reserves stepped out and blocked highways and blocked trains, Canada's done. Like, what's it going to do? And I think, I think that there, we'll see more of that because the Mohawk have been so successful. But the Mohawk have laid important groundwork. I don't think that Via Rail would have taken them as seriously as they did if Oka wasn't lurking in the back of their mind. Exactly. It's a good point, which just goes to show, can we talk about protests a little bit here? And all sure. these people who are like, oh, well, what do protests do? Well, apparently protests brings a, a, like the economic activity of a whole country to its knees. That's what protests yeah. do. They're designed to give you some sort of upper hand when you don't, when you have nothing. Mm -hmm. They're designed to inconvenience. They're designed yeah. to, um, to disrupt. I don't even know what the hell an illegal protest is, to be honest. And it just... Well, Chief, Chief Wu's from Grizzly House, because uh, the Wet'suwet'en, the nations there are divided into houses. Yes. Um, so Grizzly House, uh, the Chief, the chief uh, of Grizzly House... He at his press conference a couple days ago when I said that they all, they met at Tyndanega, he said inconvenience is not injustice. Yes, and we often forget that, you know, and we talk about the inconvenience of not being able to take the train home from university, or you know, you know, we talk about these inconveniences or the inconvenience of like when we held the border for an hour last week weekend and you know the highway 420 for a couple hours longer than that and people were inconvenienced you know they couldn't just one woman was two hours late for work because of that so they talk about their their inconvenience but we're talking about injustice right like we're talking about the, like even the big rally against the conservative cuts yesterday was inconvenient but we were talking about injustices about the way things are funded about the way um you know about about indigenous sovereignty and really what's happening at West Oton could be any of us it is any of us there's diamond mines outside Attawapiskat De Beers is getting wealthy they get you know they're not so and that's unceded territory so this happens again and again and people get inconvenienced I'm okay with that and who said that uh Chief Woo's of uh, Grizzly House, Wet'suwet'en, the Wet'suwet'en Nation. He said, inconvenience is not injustice. Wow. And I just thought. Wow. Like that's, it just, that's one of those. It's, a, it's one of those phrases, right? Yeah. Wow. So um, now I understood that um, the federal government was going to table UNDRIP federally like 
Right. Did that ever happen? Or was that just, you know... No, he's postponed it to deal with the Witsowit and the thing. Because it would be super awkward to agree to enforce UNDRIP and then shove a pipeline through Witsowit territory. <laughs> That's right. It would be super they awkward. So they had to table it. <laughs> they got to clear you off first and then tell you that they're giving you rights. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Except that BC has tabled UNDRIP. But that's the said that they will that they will support UNDRIP and yet they're not. So yeah. So what 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 what's going on? Because UNDRIP, so the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of the Indigenous, rights of indigenous people, people. Yeah, it was tabled like just I kid you not, like three months ago. Yeah, or four in BC, and it was passed from what yeah. I understand. Yep. So like, what the fuck, man? Rule of law, they got their injunction, so, you know, what are you going to do? But, and and let me tell you, like, UNDRIP is a real problem. Yes, UNDRIP, Art- UNDRIP gives, gives countries a backdoor. Yeah, Article 10, Indigenous people shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. Oops. Article 19. States shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerning their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free, prior, and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them. Article 26.1, indigenous peoples have the right to lands, territories, and resources, which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used as acquired. Two, indigenous people have the right to own, use, develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources that they possess by reason of traditional ownership or other occupation or other traditional occupation or use, as well as those which they have otherwise acquired. And three, states shall give legal recognition and protection to these lands territories and resources, such recognition shall be conducted with due respect to customs, traditions, and land tenure systems of the indigenous peoples concerned. Whoops. That's all violated. Yes. Yeah, Let- but UNDRIP gives them a back door though, right? As long as it doesn't, it, it's the same with, um, you know, with a, a business's duty to accommodate disabilities, uh, you know, up to a certain point. So UNDRIP un- gives states a similar backdoor in that up to a certain point, yes, you do all of those things, but not if it's really going to, not, not if it's really going to cause some problems. Really? So gives, yeah. So that's, that, that's where, you know, it, it's, I think it's a good document, but it's got some flaws. It's yeah. not a, it's not a perfect document. I think it was probably the best, you know, might have been the best that they could get everybody to agree to, something that would pass, but I mean it's also not a final you know, and now and now everything has been written. It's like, well, maybe if we can get this much, then we can work towards something better. Because it does it does give the state a backdoor to you, you know, to do what they're doing. By saying what that we that we consulted you, but fuck off, like. <laughs> well, they, look, they could, we consulted the tenants, 
right oh, okay. fine you know so, okay. so that's okay and the court did say you know did say that uh, you know did provide an injunction and the RCMP were authorized to get you out of the way you're still on your land you're just over there instead of over here I see okay so moved you from one side of the property to the other but you're still technically on your land I see. Gotcha. Gotcha. Ah, see? Tactics. <laughs> Indigenous self-determination is a threat to the state. Yeah. And it should be. It should be. I'm not here to say that it isn't. It is a threat to the state. You can't have a group of people inside of a state asserting their own rights and their own authority over things and have that not be a threat to the state. But I think that the Canadian state needs to be threatened, not in the sense of I'm, you know, advocating open revolution, but states evolve, right? States evolve all the time, you, you know, and they, and they change the way they do things and they change the way they structure themselves. No state existed for 2000 years. They all evolve and change. And I think Canada needs to evolve and change. And that means acknowledging, you know, the, the roots uh, of how it structured itself and the roots of, of how it built itself on black and indigenous people. That's why I think conversations like this are so important. And like my podcast with Carrie and talking about things, you know, kind of our shared ground and, you know, we, we've got a particular history within these colonial states that other newcomers don't have. Yeah. We have a shared history for sure. For sure. Um, it, 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 as the, as time goes on, the, um, collective action of black and indigenous peoples is inevitable to me in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm, I, I think of myself right now as trying to build a ground, you know, you know, kind of a, a ground, so some groundwork for that in, in my own community. Not, yeah. I'm not trying to, you know, take over the country, but just kind of you know, with my, within my own, you know, kind of community here in Southern Ontario, looking for ways to, Looking, looking for ways to build that, to kind of build on what Carrie and I have done, you know, kind of pull it off the podcast and, and do it in other ways as well. So we'll see. I find that that like comes calling. That's what I find. Like, yeah, being open to being open to possibility. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, you know what? Thank you for, this was riveting, like literally riveting. It's super interesting. Yeah. Holy shit. I, you need to come back on. Yeah. Uh, anytime. I'll come back on. And so, okay. So where can people, uh, here's where you're going to plug your podcast and where people can find you. And okay, so, hi, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can listen to me and Carrie, um, on medicine for the resistance where, Oh God, we're on, we're on, we're on all the platforms, right? So anything that picks up from the Apple feed, we're there, Stitcher, we're on Stitcher, we're iTunes. Does iTunes even exist anymore? Uh, on PC, I think it does. Okay. All right. Yeah. So anyway, so wherever, wherever you get your podcast, we're, we're on SoundCloud, but um, that's where we host it, but you can really get us anywhere. And then on Twitter is where I spend far too much time. <laughs> Are you kidding? I love your tweets. Sometimes I'm like, I'm like, I need to call her in on this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, so I'm there. So at uh, at Danish, G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S. Uh, what is the means, significance of that? That means your daughter. Okay. So yeah, Gdanish, Um I dropped the G-I off, um, you know, so it's just on my name, but it's at G-I-N-D-A-N-I-S. And it, it just means daughter. It's a, an Ojibwe word that means daughter. So I like it. it I've been there for 10 years now. I've only really started being serious on Twitter in the last couple of years. That's I feel like good. I have a lot to say. Yeah, you do. So, <laughs> No, you do. I need to start writing it off Twitter. I have a Medium account. Maybe I should start writing essays there. Ah! I actually have something coming out in Sojourners in March. Tell us uh, Sojourners Magazine. So... Um, so I, I go to church and <laughs> really bad one Sunday, the pastor was talking about identity politics and, and identity and how we're all the same in Jesus. And it was just so infuriating um, <laughs> because I don't stop being who I am. Right. When I walk into a church and, and, and so we're not all you and same. I have to have a church conversation because I feel like when I hear about the March for life, my eyes roll back in, in the back of my head, but I go to church too. Yeah, so there's some parts of it that just drive me completely bananas. Yeah. Um, and that was one part that just drove me completely bananas. And so then I went and I talked with a pastor friend of mine about why I was so angry about this. And and he says, well, but what if what Paul was talking about was just that, not that you don't stop being these things, but that the hierarchies associated with those things don't matter anymore. Right. And at that point, he was talking my language now, right? Yes, because I'm all, about yes. I'm all about dismantling hierarchy. Yes. So that's the article that I wrote for Sojourners, is looking oh. at, look, looking at, you know, the, 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 basically those two passages about how we're all the same. Yeah. And showing that that's not really what Paul meant, that what he's talking about is how we're, that those, that those hierarchies associated with these different identities don't matter anymore. Right. And this is a, and really how transformative could any community be if the higher, if the social positions we occupy outside, and I'm not even talking about church, I'm talking about friendship centers, community yeah. centers, anywhere, the hierarchy, the, the, the social place we occupy outside stops mattering in this yeah. room. Yeah. In this room, we are all just working together and then... And then eventually that is going to transform lives outside of that room because we get used to see, to relating to each other differently. And then we start relating to each other differently in the comments as well. And well, how transformative would that be? All right. Right. And so that's kind of where it, so yeah, so that's what I wrote for Sojourners and they really like it. So tag us at Bad and Bitchy. Okay. Uh, when it comes out. Uh, also, uh, da, 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 when's your, what's your next action? When and where? We don't, uh, like for what's so Yeah. I, we don't have, locally, we don't have anything planned right now. Um, I think we're waiting to see, we're waiting to see what, uh, the hereditary chiefs are looking for on a broader national. Like, are they going to, you know, are they going to call for a particular day of action? Are the RCMP going to actually stand down right. in the face, uh, you know, in the face of, because they've said that they're not accepting what they've currently offered. These are our demands and we're not yeah. talking to you until anything happens. I am. So I do have a uh, fund, uh, Patreon fundraiser called pay your rent. Yeah. Uh, where guilt 
where the settlers give me their money and I spend it on indigenous things. And it's called pay your rent. So it's patreon.com slash pay your rent. Yes. Okay. And there's different tier levels of support. So pay, it, it helps to fund the podcast. It helps, uh, you know, so we're doing a number of things. People can read about that. But one of the things that we've been doing recently is sending money to Tyndanega. Uh, to kind of help with the material costs of the ca- of the small camp that they have set up because they need to be ready, right? Like if they're saying you're not putting any trains through our territory, if somebody decides to call their bluff and say, well, here we come, they need to be ready. So gotcha. there is a small group that's staying near the camp. And so we're, you know, so pay your rent is sending, us, uh, you know, some to them as well to buy what they need in order to maintain their camp. And I think we're going to send some to the Wet'suwet'en camp as well. So that's something I'm doing myself. And then, yeah, I mean, we probably will do another action. I don't know. Maybe shut down the priest bridge this time. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. So uh, we got to say bye together, okay? One, okay. two, three. Bye. bye. bye.